Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Asteroids are great parts of science fiction, but how do they help the scientific community today? There's a lot of missions to go and study asteroids, and there's a lot of good reasons for doing so. Aside from avoiding potential civilization collapse with an asteroid impact, we need to know what they're made of, how to move them, and how to get the stuff to and from them. Plus, we also need to know why sometimes things like asteroids and comets just disappear. And that's what we'll be finding out about today. If you're like me, then you've probably spent the last week exploring, cataloging, researching, and discovering things in an infinitely generated procedural universe based on our own in No Man's Sky. And if you've played any No Man's Sky, you'll know it's all about those resources. In particular, mining things, rare metals, minerals, and elements from various asteroids as well as planetary surfaces. And that's great in a science fiction game, and those of you who love space exploration games can pretty much spend a lot of time in those universes. But in the real world, in actual space... Can we mine asteroids? Well, we've spoken about that a lot of times on this podcast. And NASA is preparing to launch its first mission to not only go to an asteroid to study it, but also to return back to Earth a sample of the minerals and content of that asteroid. Now, everybody's hearts were enamoured with the Rosetta mission and the tiny Philae lander who landed on Comet 67P, drilled in, took a lot of measurements, and stayed there for a long period of time. However... Going to an asteroid and returning is something that's not often done. And NASA, therefore, has a mission called OSIRIS-REx, the Origin Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification Security Regolith Explorer. And that really actually does sound like something straight out of a game, but it's not. It's straight out of a NASA research lab. And on Thursday, the 8th of September, will be launched straight out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Now, the satellite itself is only about 2,100 kilograms, and it's being launched on a massive Atlas V rocket. And it won't reach the asteroid that it's studying until about 2018. The asteroid, by the way, is named Bennu, and it's going to be taking, once it reaches Bennu, many samples between about 600 to 2,000 grams of surface material with its robotic arm. And these will actually be launched back to Earth via a detachable capsule in 2023. So again, this is a long-term space mission, but an exciting one, because it will give us actual samples of what an asteroid is made of, and help reveal perhaps its origins. And of course, on board of OSIRIS-REx, it's got a bunch of different sensors, including cameras, laser altimeters, thermal emission spectrometers, infrared spectrometers, and imaging cameras as well. But it does have two specialised robotic systems to actually take samples, such as the touch-and-go sample acquisition mechanism and the sample return capsule. And all of these combined will hopefully make OSIRIS-REx one of the first really great asteroid visitation and return missions, paving the way for asteroid mining, like all science fiction fans want to believe in, a reality.
Back in 2012, Russian astronomers Vitaly Nevesky and Artyom Novinshok made a great discovery. Picked up an amazing, very vibrant comet. And this comet was discovered at the International Scientific Optical Network, or ISON, and it was nicknamed effectively the Comet ISON. And they found it from data from late December to 2011, and they sort of monitored it through 2012. And they finally fully identified it with confirmation from other observatories during 2012 and 13. And this is really amazing because this comet ISON was a sun-grazing comet, one of the comets that get really, really close to the sun as part of its orbit, and it was a newly discovered comet too. In fact, once they discovered it, its orbital path suggested that it would become so bright as it got so close to the sun and sort of lit up, that it would become as bright or brighter than a full moon. And so everyone was really geared up and excited for this comet to come visit, and to observe it with the naked eye and with a bunch of observatories. But when the transfer date, 28th of November 2013, the perihelion passage date happened, the comet was nowhere to be seen, which led to a lot of confusion. Things don't just disappear. They had great modelling. They thought it would be about five kilometres in diameter, which is a pretty large for a comet. And they had a lot of confirmation about its actual... And it was meant to actually keep going until it ejected to about 2050. So... Everything seemed to be boding well for this comet, and this would be a great sight to behold. They tracked its journey all the way from the Oort cloud at the edge of the solar system into the sun. So, researchers since then have been trying to figure out what on earth happened to this comet. Did it get lost along the way? Did it disappear? Was it even there to begin with? Now, the first thing the scientists did, including researchers from NASA and the National Centre for Atmospheric Research, NCAR, actually did was confirm that it really existed. And they did a lot of image processing to make sure that that was the case. And they did. They had multiple verifications from different sets of data from different times to suggest that, yes, in fact, it did exist. So then where could it go? Well, the most likely cause of end for a comet, really, is melting away into nothingness, destruction. Now, the thing about sun-grazing comets is that they're not unusual, but they generally are too small to live through the encounter. They come in really close to the sun and then disappear. Now, larger comets like Comet Lovejoy, which sailed through the sun's corona in December 2011, can survive the the very perilous journey. And really, the comet Ison was spotted ages before it even reached the sun. So, which suggested, given its brightness, that it was actually quite large. However, when it got very close to the perihelion part of the sun, part of its orbit in the sun, they weren't able to see any any comet trail at all. Now, some people speculated that perhaps what had happened is that it didn't really emit extreme ultraviolet radiation like Comet Lovejoy, because it sort of made its sun-grazing transition further away from the sun. New research published in the Astrophysics Journal by Bryans and Pesnell, um, using the Solar Dynamics Observatory uh, by NASA and the NCAR Research Group, have sort of said that, well, they analysed and compared Ison and Lovejoy to see what the difference was between these comets and why they had such a very different story. And what they found is that Ison, by estimate size and observing a number of different parameters, including the density of the solar atmosphere, the sun's magnetic field, and the size of the comets, um, they've come to the conclusion that Ison was probably about a factor of four smaller than Lovejoy's. And that difference in radius means there was no as much radiation and emissions to observe. 
So maybe we got our measurements wrong. We originally thought it was, you know, five kilometers in radius, which would have been plenty large. But they were measuring that through brightness. But maybe there's another thing going on here. Now, comet size is often correlated to brightness, but perhaps, depending on emissions as well, that, that could be impacted by different factors of the comet's molecular makeup. And in Ison's case, scientists believe that the comet was making its very first trip around the sun, and it was packed with highly volatile matter that hadn't yet burnt off. And that means when it started to form its tail as the solar radiation started to bombard it more and more, you got really, really vibrant burn-offs that looked and made it appear much, much larger. And that stuff burns off really easily, this cold, icy stuff on the outside, and it burns really, really brightly, and it gives us this false perception of size compared with something like a much more stable orbit that's done this a few times. And it's actually believed now that by the time it made its closest approach to the sun, it was just a pile of dust and rubble, and likely broke up into pieces before even entering the sun's corona. So that goes a long way to explain why the comet Ison disappeared. It had a lot of material on the outside that meant for a very vibrant show before it got there, but meant it sort of burnt out and fizzled out far too soon, and that all that was left by the time it got close to the sun was just a small bit of rocks that just disappeared in the corona. So there's still a lot we don't know about comets, and it's very imprecise, which is why we do need to get out there and go study them. Comet 67P and the Rosetta mission, for example, is one aspect, as is the OSIRIS-REx mission, but it's really important that we go and study these things because they may have a great impact on life on Earth as we know it. One of the reasons why we need to pay a lot of attention to asteroids and comets is not just the fun science fiction fantasy of mining an asteroid and living inside it, but the life-altering, very serious consequences for civilization that could occur if there was a large impact of an asteroid or a comet with Earth. Now, we hypothesize that there are many, been many such impacts, and we likely believe that that was the reason why the dinosaurs were wiped out, or at least one of the contributing factors. And you can only have to look at some of the very, very large impact craters scattered across Earth, or in fact, the Moon and other planets, to see the dangerous damage that asteroids and comets can bring, if they collide with the Earth. But don't worry, NASA is aware and on this challenge, and part of the missions like OSIRIS-REx to go and study these things is to build up an understanding of how these work. But even if there's one heading towards Earth, what do we do? And that's where the NASA-approved mission, the Asteroid Redirect Mission, ARM, comes into play. And at the moment, it's in design and development phase, but it's just got through a major milestone. The Asteroid Redirect Mission, ARM, basically is a two-part mission that will integrate both a robotic and crewed operations. And it also acts as a good proving ground for any planned journeys to Mars. Now, NASA has a target launch date for the robotic part of this mission uh, in December 2021. So it gives time for the industry robotic spacecraft to be developed according to the schedule. It'll cost around $1.4 billion. 
Now, the crude segment is targeted for launch about 2026 and still in a, in a pre-concept formulation phase. But the first part, this robotic mission, is basically designed to launch this robotic mission and make it all the way to a low-gravity planetary body, such as an asteroid, and with a controlled touchdown and liftoff of a large, very large payload spacecraft, uh, much larger than the 2,000 kilograms for the OSIRIS-REx mission. Now, the, the, the robotic mission basically will prove the concept for the crewed mission to follow. Basically, we have a pretty stringent policy before sending anyone into space. We make sure that we are able to do it safely with a robot first. And in fact, is one of the interesting parts about the robotic element of the ARM mission is that it will be done using a solar electric propulsion system, which means that it can actually get to one of the near-Earth asteroids, one of the things that we're very closely watching to make sure it doesn't come in within reach of Earth. Um, and some of the near-Earth astero near asteroids are about 120 million miles away from Earth, or 1.3 AU, so the distance from Earth to the Sun. And that's, that sounds like a lot, but it's actually really close. NASA hasn't decided the target asteroid, but it's pretty much using 2008 EV-5 as the rest reference asteroid until it picks one. Uh, the reason why they've chosen that one is because it's, it's a primitive, carbonaceous, full of carbon asteroid, and it's believed to actually have some potential for holding rich, volatile elements such as water and organic compounds. So going there, taking core samples and bringing them back is actually really important. Because if we want to redirect a, mission, a big asteroid, we need to know what it's made of. Because in, say, the movie Armageddon, where they explode it with a lot of nukes, that only works if you're confident that those nukes are actually going to destroy it. If it's just a huge chunk of iron, that might not do anything. So then you might have to push it away. And this ARM mission is not just going to take a small sample like a Cyrus-Rex. No, no, it's going to take a multi-ton boulder and push it away from the asteroid. And they'll redirect that boulder to orbit around the moon using the moon's gravity as, as an assist, where they can then go send other missions, missions quickly and safely to collect, analyze, and study it. Now, returning a multi-ton asteroid mass is pretty much like asteroid mining. In fact, it is asteroid mining, but this is done for scientific purposes, so we know how to redirect an asteroid in the future. So... If we do have an asteroid that we pick up through the variety of different programs such as Sentinel or the Near-Earth Objects Observatories, what do we then do about it? Well, the NASA Asteroid Redirection Mission is a good part of starting to understand and study it. But there are a couple of different approaches. Obviously, putting nukes on it and exploding it is a pretty good one. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have as many nukes in the world as we used to, which is a good, very good thing for the planet, but less good for defending the planet. Um, however, it is suspected that there have been some retention of some of these old nuclear warheads for use for that exact purpose. But as talked about, there's, scientists are unsure and un in disagreement whether or not they'll actually do very much. Kinetic impact is basically ramming something deep into the asteroid to try and nudge it off course, and that really works if you do it really, really early on. For example, the European Space Agency is in the process of two preliminary design missions with a spacecraft named IDA. Uh, basically, its idea is to ram it into an asteroid, and such as the Apophis asteroid, which could push it away. And the asteroid itself would only be hit by a spacecraft weighing about one ton, which is quite small and quite simple, but it, it, it can't just nudge it. And if you get there early enough, it will do a lot of good. 
The only hope is that you don't push it into a more unstable orbit. The other idea is to actually get a small object close to it in a weird orbit around it that acts as a tractor, shepherding the asteroid towards a different location. Um, that's what the ARM mission is actually trying to demonstrate, just on a smaller scale. And the idea is called a gravity tractor. And you basically move your thing, your shepherd along, and it just pulls through its own local gravitational field impact the asteroid away. And you can do a similar thing with slightly pushing on it with an ion beam, a really low-powered beam that just kind of nudges the thing into position. Another idea is basically to throw in a big solar sail and sail the asteroid away, which again could work. All of these ideas, though, work well if you get there early. If you get there late, your options really, really do limit. It's much easier to change the orbit with a very, very small force early on. And that's why groups like NASA, the European Space Agency, and many others are actually studying this with a lot of research, because it is one of the things that could potentially, very seriously, endanger life on Earth as we know it. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. So this week we found out about asteroids, how we're going to study them with the ARM and the OSIRIS-REx mission, plus why Comet Ison just disappeared and dissolved into nothingness. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.